Well, friends, it is um, a great privilege for me to share uh, in church here at SMAC this morning. I've heard about SMAC uh, again and again and again. Uh, this is uh, the first opportunity I've had to be with you, and uh, thank you for the uh, welcome that I've received, and thank you for the privilege uh, of sharing uh, in this time with you. Um, uh, as I've gathered, and uh, as we've been reminded through this morning, uh, you've been looking at the book of Exodus. Unfortunately, I haven't been here to hear what you've been looking at. Uh, I've just got a guess. Uh, but I'm sure that you've seen, as the story has been unfolding up to this point in this book, that it's the story of a time when there were very impressive forces at work opposed to God and opposed to God's people. Uh, those forces uh, were particularly expressed in Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, he was powerful, very powerful, and he subject, subjected the people of Israel to a terrible slavery. Uh, it was cruel, it was harsh, uh, it was horrid. And the Israelites were in despair under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And as we follow the story in the book of Exodus, we must remember that these people... Uh, these Israelites, uh, these people in slavery, uh, the people we're reading about, the story, is about uh, th they were the descendants of Abraham. And as I said a few moments ago, uh, one of the key things that the Bible tells us about is the promise that God made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his own people. He promised that he would bless these people. And through these people, he would actually bring blessing to the whole world. That's the story the Bible tells, the story of God keeping that promise, which he has done and which he is still doing right up to this day. But go back and just try and imagine what it would have been like to be an Israelite in Egypt in those days. You're oppressed. You're hated by the powerful people. You're abused. Wherever you go, uh, you're regularly beaten, you're despised. It would not have been easy, would it, if you'd been an Israelite in those days, to believe God's promise to Abraham. You will be my people, said God. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the whole world. And I can imagine any Israelite in those days saying, right, you've got to be joking. It would have been very difficult to believe God's promise. The forces opposed to God, the forces opposed to God's people, the forces that hated God's people were overwhelming and terrifying. And they seemed to be winning. Pharaoh seemed to have the upper hand. That's certainly what it looked like. It's definitely what it felt like. Now, friends, we live in a world where powerful forces are opposed to God and his people. Uh, where you live in the world makes a difference to how much you feel that explicitly and just what form that takes. But very often we find that these forces are overwhelming and frightening. Certainly they're impressive. Uh, and very often, they seem to be winning. Sometimes, of course, it is open, violent hostility, as at present in too many places in the world. Uh, sometimes it is much more subtle. 
but it is a disdain and a looking down on and a despising of God and his people. The book of Exodus, uh, just what you've worked on so far up to chapter 6, should remind us that this is not a new experience when we experience this. Indeed, it's not an unusual experience. Of course, what actually happened in those far-off days in Egypt, particularly what we're going to see this morning, was unusual, it was remarkable, it was in its own terms unique. But the experience of powerful forces in the world opposed to God and making it actually quite hard to believe God, that's not unusual. I wonder, and I'm not going to try and spell it out in your situation because I don't understand your situation here. I could spell it out in my own, but you could reflect on your own life here uh, in this part of the world. Uh, what are the forces? What are the ideas? Who are the people that you're familiar with, that you feel, that you see, who are in fact, in one way or another, either subtly and passively or even openly and explicitly opposed to the God of the Bible and opposed to his people. Well, that's what the Israelites were experiencing as they suffered under the terrible power of Pharaoh. As I say, it was not evil, not easy for them to believe God, just as it can be hard for us. How can we go on trusting God when the churches seem so weak? when other, fa- other powers seem so powerful, when we Christians seem to be having so little impact, when other forces and other ideas, and particularly ones that are explicitly opposed to the Christian gospel, are making such progress. Well, here in the book of Exodus, the Israelites, uh, as, we have, uh, as I've just mentioned, found themselves in this harsh, bitter slavery. And you remember how the story goes. Moses was sent by God to confront Pharaoh, king of Egypt, with this simple message. Let my people go. That was back in chapter 5, verse 1. Let my people go. Pharaoh heard this message that Moses brought to him from God and Pharaoh responded, do you remember, by saying, in effect, this is my paraphrase of what he said, who does the Lord think he is? That I... Pharaoh of Egypt should take any notice of him. I will not let the people of Israel go. And it has to be said, Pharaoh's power, as he said no to God's word to him, was very impressive indeed. He simply ratcheted up. He increased the harshness of the treatment of the Israelites. They were worse off than they had been before. He treated them more and more and more cruelly than ever, and they were in utter despair. Well, I've been asked to look with you at chapter 7 through to 10, which is a big challenge, I must say, uh, in the few minutes that we have. These chapters tell us uh, how the conflict between the power of Pharaoh and the power of God became very intense indeed. Uh, And we'll learn some very important lessons about the conflict that we ourselves experience in different ways uh, in our own day. Uh, We can't, of course, look at these chapters in detail. I hope that you might go away and read them through carefully later. Uh, Perhaps you have read them through carefully in preparation for this morning. That's terrific, and uh, I'm sure that you'll find what we think about uh, uh, more illuminating than you would have otherwise. But I'm just going to try and sketch in outline what happened. Uh, We'll just look at some bits of it. And then uh, when we've done a little bit of that and got a bit of a picture of what happened through these chapters... 
Uh, I want to sit back uh, with you and, and just think about three lessons that we learned. So we're going to have a little bit of a look at the story uh, and then we'll settle back and have a, have a think about three lessons that we learn uh, from the things that happened in those far off days. Uh, let's begin, uh, and rather than beginning in chapter 7, as I was told, I never do as I'm told, you see, we'll, we'll begin at the end of chapter 6. 6 verse 28, I think, is where, we, where we'll start, uh, where our reading started. Uh, chapter 6 verse 28, that's on page 49 if you have the small Bible, or 59 if you've got the Bible with all... No, they've all got the same amount in them, I'm sure. Uh, but the 49 or 59, I understand, are the, two, are the page numbers. Uh, Exodus chapter 6 verse 28, you see, if you look at that, that God spoke to Moses again. And verse 29, we see what the Lord said. The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh of Egypt all that I say to you. Now, you might remember that Moses was not very happy with the mission that God had given him. Um, Moses had had a bitter experience of just how powerful and terrifying Pharaoh's opposition to God was and how inadequate Moses felt in the face of Pharaoh's power. And so Moses said in verse 30, chapter 6, verse 30, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. Uh, One of the other translations says, uh, I speak with faltering lips. Uh, How will Pharaoh listen to me? What chance have I got, really? And so God responded, now we're at chapter 7, where I'm supposed to be. Chapter 7, verse 1, God says, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He can do the speaking for you. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron can tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Oh, great, you can imagine him saying. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Terrific. Then... I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people of Israel, the children of Israel, out of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, with that word, I am quite sure that Moses and probably Aaron as well had uh, all sorts of questions. Uh, I'm sure they found what God said there, and just a couple of things that I emphasise as we were reading through it, rather perplexing. Uh, I wonder if you have questions in your mind about the way in which God is is doing things here. Well, however puzzled they may have been, Moses and Aaron obeyed God. That's in verse 6. They went to Pharaoh. We read about that in verses 8 to 12. Uh, They performed a sign to, I suppose, try and persuade Pharaoh to take this seriously. Um, Would this have an effect? Uh, Aaron took his staff threw it down on the ground in front of Pharaoh and his attendants, and the staff turned into a snake. Well, that was a bit weird, a bit dramatic, Uh, even more so, I think, because the Egyptians worshipped snakes. I don't get that, I've got to say. I'm scared of snakes, but I don't think I worship them. Uh, But they did, and uh, I'm sure that that added somewhat to the... um, the excitement of the occasion when the, 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 uh, the staff turned into a snake. What then happened, however, was that the Egyptian magicians came in, verse 11, and by what we're told their secret arts, they did the same thing. Or at least something that looked like the same thing. They threw down their staffs and they became snakes. Now, I don't know whether that was a trick. I don't know whether they had access to some sort of occult magic or what it was. 
But they did something that looked at least just as impressive as what Moses and Aaron had done, except for one thing. Aaron's staff, now a snake of course, gobbled up their snakes. I like that bit. But very strange, isn't it? Very strange. But look at verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, that, was, that set the stage for the famous plagues of Egypt. Uh, there were ten of them. We're hearing about nine of them today. The first plague begins in verse 14. Moses uh, was sent by God to speak to Pharaoh again. Uh, let's just pick up what he, what he was to say at verse 17. Uh, he was to say, thus says the Lord, 7 verse 17, uh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it will turn to blood. And that's exactly what happened. And not only the water in the Nile, but water right through the country. Uh, what a horror that must have been. It's hard to picture, isn't it? Hard to imagine. All over the country, water turned into blood. We're told in 7 verse 22 that again the magicians in Egypt did the same thing. Oh, by their secret arts. Uh, so far, the Egyptian magicians uh, seem to be some, uh, to, to sort of match, or at least appear to match, the power of God that was being displayed by Moses and Aaron. It's interesting to me that they were apparently not able to undo what God had done. That's interesting. And I'm sure the people of Egypt would have been much more grateful to them if they could have, rather than turning yet more water into blood. That was hardly helpful. But nonetheless, if you'd been there, and if you'd been watching what was going on, it would have seemed as though the Egyptians had at their disposal power just as impressive as Moses and Aaron had at their disposal. That's what it looked like. That's what it felt like. Now look at verse 22, second half of verse 22. So Pharaoh remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The second plague is described at the beginning of chapter 8. Uh, this time, uh, the land was covered with frogs. Uh, yucky. Uh, frogs absolutely literally everywhere. You couldn't walk without squelching a frog. Uh, inside, outside, in beds, in kitchen utensils, in ovens, everywhere. Frogs. Uh, I, I don't like that. And in 8 verse 7, notice this, 8 verse 7, the magicians came along and again they did the same thing and I doubt that made them popular. Right? More frogs, but that's what they did. Uh, this time we read in verse 8 that Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me. Obviously the magicians can't do that and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, obviously, Pharaoh didn't think that his magicians could fix up the problem, and you might think you could get to this point, second plague, at last, Pharaoh's come to his senses. Uh, well, Moses did what Pharaoh asked. He prayed to the Lord. All the frogs died. Uh, that still would have been a wretched, smelly mess, I'm sure, uh, to clean up, but, but it was cleaned up. And then what happened? Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. You starting to get the pattern? Plague three was gnats, nasty, biting bugs throughout the land. Uh, that's described in chapter 8, verses 16 through to 19. Uh, I won't go into the details except to note that verse 18 tells us 
that the Egyptian magicians couldn't match this one. I'm not quite sure why this was harder for them. They couldn't do it. And they said to Pharaoh, verse 19, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Plague four was flies. Um, This makes me feel comfortable. Sounds like an Australian summer, really. Uh, Worse than an Australian summer, uh, if you can imagine something worse than an Australian summer. Flies everywhere. Uh, this time, uh, there was something different. A distinction was made. It's very hard to imagine, except it's a, an act of God, so it's a miracle. It's just extraordinary. But all over Egypt, there were flies, plague of flies. The air was thick with flies everywhere, except a little area called the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites were living. Quite extraordinary. Walk across into the land of Goshen, no flies. Walk out of Goshen, flies everywhere. So miraculously, a distinction was now made between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Look at verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to the Lord your God within the land. Moses said, No, that's not good enough. That's some negotiation. And then Pharaoh said, verse 28, uh, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you mustn't go very far, but pray for me, plead for me. So Moses prayed, the flies left, and then you get to verse 32, 32 of chapter 8. But Pharaoh, what did he do? Hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go. That's plague four. Uh, I'm not sure how many we'll work through. I'll just have a look at a couple more and then sketch in the rest of them. Plague five, at the beginning of chapter 9, Uh, was a deadly plague that fell on the livestock of the land, horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, and so on. Uh, And again, a distinction was made. The livestock of the Israelites were not harmed. Um, uh, Just look at 9 verse 7. Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Plague 6, I quite like Plague 6, I can't resist looking very quickly at Plague 6, uh, begins in chapter 9 verse 8, uh, it was boils, uh, it must be the little boy in me that quite likes this one, very uncomfortable, uh, boils on all the people and on all the animals, but with a little bit of wry humour I think, we're told in verse 11 that the magicians couldn't stand before Moses because of the boils, they couldn't sit down, for the boils came upon the magicians and all the Egyptians. Uh, For some reason, the uh, magicians didn't try to replicate that one, you notice. And verse 12, but the Lord, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Well, I think you're getting the pattern. Uh, It really is worth reading right through and getting the feel for the whole thing. We can't do that now. Plague 7, just glance at it in chapter 9, verse 13, was hail, right? Terrible hail. Plague 8, Uh, beginning at chapter 10, verse 1, was locusts everywhere. Plague 9, well, plague 9 doesn't sound so terrible when you read about it in chapter 10, verse 21 and following, Uh, but it would have been terrible. It was, uh, if you've been there for three days, there was total, total darkness. You know, darkness like you can't see the hand in front of your face. Um, I I don't understand how it was, but another extraordinary miracle at that time. This is physically impossible, but nothing's impossible with God. Uh, In the land of Goshen, there wasn't darkness. Now, how you could walk across a border and suddenly have light, but I don't know how God did that one, but he did. What an extraordinary sequence of events. 
these nine, there's going to be another one that you, you look at that next week, but these nine plagues that were sent on Egypt. And you know, these events, uh, extraordinary as they were, you know, it's hardly surprising uh, if these things really happened and they did, they were never forgotten. That's not surprising. The people of Israel remembered these events. The story was told over and over again through the centuries. From generation to generation, parents would tell their children about what happened when they were in Egypt. Uh, When parts of the Bible, like the Psalms, were written, these events were still remembered, and you find them recounted again in the Psalms. The people remembered and told what God did in those days in Egypt. What did they learn? Why did they keep telling that story? What do we learn as these events have been recounted yet again in the year 2014 in this part of the world? Isn't that extraordinary? That's how significant those events were. They've been told over and over again, and here we are this morning hearing about them yet again. I do hope that you'll go home and read through the account in more detail. I think you'll probably have puzzles and questions, and I'm not going to pretend to answer all of those now. Uh, It's good to have puzzles and questions as you read the Bible uh, and to find yourself thinking and and, and trying to understand uh, what's going on, what are we learning here. But let me just suggest briefly three important lessons for us to understand and learn from what happened so long ago in Egypt. The first lesson is that the Lord God, the God who is really there, judges and saves. Now we will just look at some of the references uh, in this section and perhaps a little bit outside that section uh, to uh, get, get our lessons here. Uh, look back with me to chapter 6, verse 6, a bit before our passage, but 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will do that. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. We need to understand that those plagues that we've been reading about in Exodus 7 to 10 were God's mighty acts of judgment on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And the first thing for us to think about carefully from these chapters of the book of Exodus is do you believe that about God? Do you understand that God is like that? The Bible is teaching us that God is a God who does this kind of thing. God is a God who judges. He acts in judgment on people, on people who are evil, on people who refuse to obey him, on people who are willing to have God as their God. God judges. But it's more than that. In Exodus 7 through 10, we see that God's acts of judgment were the means by which he would save the Israelites. The end result of the plagues that were sent on Egypt was that the Israelites were rescued from their terrible plight. You're going to see that over the next few weeks. God judges in order to save. But we need to understand that God's salvation involves judgment. Now, that's perfectly clear uh, in this incident uh, with the Egyptians and the Israelites, but we're seeing something here that is true of all God's work of salvation. And this means that we cannot do what many of us are inclined to do, and that is we like to think of the positive side of the Bible's message and the positive side only. 
We rightly love to think about God's gift of salvation, how wonderful it is, how good it is to have God's gift of forgiveness, how good it is to be able confidently to look forward to heaven. Of course it's good. It's wonderful. But Exodus 7 to 10, uh, we, we cannot think about the Israelites' salvation without thinking about the acts of judgment that made it possible. They were saved by those acts of judgment and you shouldn't think about the acts of judgment without thinking about their purpose, which was to save the Israelites from that terrible oppression. And friends, it is just the same with us. I mean, it's different, but it's the same in principle. We can't have half of God, not unless we want to have a make-believe God. And if you're a Christian person, you know that you have been saved. The Israelites were saved. You've been saved. You've been forgiven. You've been given a place in heaven. But how has that happened? You know that it's happened by the death of Jesus Christ. What was the death of Jesus on the cross? What was that about? It was a mighty act of judgment. God's judgment, the unusual act of judgment, the death of Jesus on the cross, very unusual. But when Jesus died on the cross, the righteous wrath of God was revealed in this world more fully than any other time in the history of the world when Jesus died on the cross. God's judgment on human sin, God's judgment on your sin, on my sin, fell on Jesus as he hung on the cross. And that great act of judgment is the means of salvation. It's not that God stopped being judge in order to save. It's not that God's wrath against sin simply evaporated. He acted in judgment, and the act of judgment is the means by which he saves people. What about that future day? That day when there will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more sadness, no more disappointments, no more failures, no more death, no more sickness. I am looking forward to that day. I hope you are. That day is coming. It will come with the return of the Lord Jesus. But how is that day going to come? How will the goodness of that day be brought about? It's going to come by a mighty act of judgment. When Jesus returns, he will judge. And as we understand this first lesson, God judges and saves, we should be clear there is no neutrality. You see, each one of us either has God as our saviour or our judge. It is one or the other. If you'd been there in Egypt, you would have either been an Egyptian or an Israelite. There was nothing in between. Is God your saviour or is he your judge? He is one or the other. Second lesson from uh, Exodus 7 to 10 is why God judges and saves. Why does God do it? Why does he do it like that? One of the questions people often ask is, why did did God go to all the bother of creating the universe? Why did he do that? Why did he then go to all the trouble that the Bible records him doing, that long, long history, and indeed the history that we are going through? Why is history as long as it is? If God's final purpose is that day we're looking forward to when everything will be right and everything will be good. Why is it taking so long? Why, is, why didn't God just create heaven and forget about earth? 
Why don't we just, why don't we just get straight? Why, why have there been the horrors of history? Now, it's not a, it's not a question that can be answered glibly. Uh, I'm not sure that it's an answer we can, a question that we can answer fully uh, with our own minds and understanding. But it's a good question, isn't it? And a version of that question is, why did God go through the long process of the plagues in Egypt? That's a version of the same question, really. Um, one of the real puzzles as we read through this chapter is why it took so long for God to rescue the Israelites. Couldn't he have done it instantly? Why was there such, a, such an agony involved? Couldn't God just have sort of teleported the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land? What, what, why couldn't he? Could he do that? Of course he could. And if he could, why didn't he? One of the lessons of Exodus 7 to 10 is to try and help us to understand at least a little bit of the answer to that question. Again, if you glance back at chapter 6, verse 7, you notice most of the answers I'm getting from outside the passage I've been asked to talk to you about, but that's all right. I wasn't here last week. You probably looked at all this, but we'll look at it again. 6, verse 7, God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Notice how this theme keeps going. 7 verse 5, 7 verse 5, um, chapter 7 verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Why was God bringing all these acts of judgment on the Egyptians? And why was God bringing about the salvation of the Israelites in this particular way? That was the outcome of these acts of judgment. The text tells us it was so that the Egyptians and the Israelites, and if you have a look at chapter 9, verse 16, it's actually so that the whole world will know who God is, who the Lord is. You see, God is a God of truth. And the greatest truth of all, the most basic truth of all, the most important truth of all is who God is. And it's simply not good for people to live in denial or ignorance of the greatest truth of all. God makes himself known. He wills to make himself known. That is, it's God's will that who he is should be known and should be known by everyone. And God did what he did in the way that he did in Egypt to make himself known to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, and indeed to the whole world. The result of what God did in Egypt is that people can know what God is like. Come and read what God did, and you can learn what God is like. You can learn who God is. He is a God who judges. He is a God who saves. And that truth was displayed in those far-off days in Egypt. And God is at work with the same purpose today. You see, the reason for the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the reason for his death and resurrection, and the reason for your salvation and my salvation as we come to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, the reason that God is building his church is to display his wisdom, his goodness and his glory. God doesn't want the truth about who he is to be hidden. He wants it to be known by the whole world and that's why he judges and he saves. Well, that brings us to our last lesson. And our last lesson uh, of these three lessons that uh, I'm just trying to share with you from these chapters is about, I think, the thing that most of us find most puzzling uh, through these pages 
And that is this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Did you notice the puzzle of that? Uh, We were thinking earlier about why it is uh, that the forces against God seem to win again and again. Um, In chapter 9, verse 15... I don't think we looked at this, but God said, by now, said to Pharaoh, by now I could have wiped you off the face of the earth, Pharaoh. Well, of course he could. He really is God. By now, God could have wiped Pharaoh off the face of the earth, but he hadn't. And the struggle went on. Why did the struggle go on? Why does the struggle go on today? Why does God allow the forces that are against him and against his people to, 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 to persist and to do, the, to do the damage that they do? Well, in chapters 7 through to 10, it had to do with Pharaoh's hard heart. But we read again and again that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, Again, I'm jumping outside of my passages, but chapter 11, verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. But... If you have a look back at chapter 8, verse 32, sorry to be jumping around like this, but we read in 8, verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And so one of the puzzles that we read through here, who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is Pharaoh hardening his own heart or is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? And if God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, as is said in some of the texts, why is he doing that? Why is that happening? And I want to just suggest, and uh, you know, big question, but uh, suggest very briefly as we draw to a close, that every time Pharaoh hardened his heart, three things were true that I think are very helpful for us to understand uh, and understand. Each three things were true every time Pharaoh's heart was hard and he refused to do what God told him to do. First, Pharaoh's hard heart was his own arrogant, culpable response to God's word. Pharaoh heard God's word to him, and Pharaoh said no. Pharaoh's response to God's word was his response. Just as I might say, your response to God's word is your response. My response to God's word is my response. If your heart this morning is hard towards God, then you are responsible for that. Just as Pharaoh was, for refusing to say yes to your maker... You are responsible for that. Refusing to thank the one who's given you everything that you are and everything you have. You are responsible for that. Just as Pharaoh was responsible, Pharaoh hardened his heart. On each occasion we see his hard heart. The second thing that is true at the same time is that Pharaoh's hard heart in no way whatsoever defeated God's purposes. Of course he didn't. God really is God. You don't think God had trouble with Pharaoh, do you? Pharaoh was just Pharaoh, little old Pharaoh in Egypt. He thought he was a big man, but he wasn't a big man, not before God. Pharaoh's no was never going to thwart God and his purposes. God is the creator of the universe. God is God. Pharaoh's hard heart was used by God to actually accomplish his purpose. And so it was also true every time that Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, I can't understand how both those things can be true. How can God be in control of everything so that nothing happens that's not part of God's purpose and Pharaoh hardened his heart 
and was still re- and was fully responsible for hard. I can't understand how this is how this can be. But the reason I can't understand it is because I'm not God. But the fact that I can't understand it and I'm of limited understanding doesn't mean it's not true. It just means God is cleverer than I am, which is hardly a surprise. So the third thing that is true every time Pharaoh hardened his heart is why? Why was Pharaoh's heart and his hard heart part of God's purpose and plan? And it was, I'm sure this isn't a complete answer, but as a part of the answer, a very important part, it was so that there would be a story to tell. A story that shows who God is. If God had simply, miraculously transported the Israelites in an instant from Egypt to the Promised Land, there wouldn't have been a story to tell, or at least it would have been a very short story. If God had instantly short-circuited the history of the world so that Adam and Eve's sin was immediately followed by the new heavens and the new earth, there'd be no story to tell. And God wanted the story to be told. He wanted there to be a story to tell, the story of his mighty acts in Egypt. The story of his mighty acts of judgment and salvation. The story of his greatest acts in the Lord Jesus Christ. The story tells of God's greatness, his goodness and his power. The story makes God known. Well, let's conclude. I wonder if you can see that the great conflict that we've seen in those far off days in Egypt between God's good purposes and the impressive forces that were opposed to him, that the conflict back then helps us to see the great conflict today between God's good purposes for his people and the impressive forces that oppose him and oppose us. You know, back then, we now know there was really never any doubt about the outcome. And today, there's no doubt about the outcome. In reality, the people of Israel were going to be rescued. They were going to be rescued from Pharaoh's cruel hand. Pharaoh would be overthrown. There actually was no doubt about the outcome, no matter what it looked like, no matter what it felt like. And you know, the people who belong to Jesus Christ today will be safely brought to heaven. There's no doubt about the outcome. Those who persist in opposing God and opposing God's people, they will be overthrown. The big question of history, the big question of life, is not who's going to win in the end. I mean, that's that's without question. God is going to win in the end. There's no doubt about that. The big question in life is whose side you will be on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what an extraordinary sequence of events this was so long ago. We've looked at it so briefly this morning. Um, It's hard for us to take it in. Um, There was much suffering, much distress, many tears. And yet through your mighty acts of judgment, you saved your people. We thank you, Heavenly Father, as you call us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. You're at work saving your people. It's hard for us sometimes, but we want to thank you that you are the God who judges and who saves. 
And we pray, Heavenly Father, that each one of us here this morning will be a person who knows you as our Saviour. We pray this in Jesus' name.